Welcome to episode 24 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 25th of April 2018. My name is Martin. I'm William. I'm Ali. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a few different news stories that have caught our eye. Our theme today is found in space. A little bit of joke for the Lost in Space fans out there. Um, we're going to talk about the Gaia DR2 data release. Oh my we're going God. to ca- talk about the TESS uh, space mission that's just been launched. Uh, and also about a galaxy which seems to have no dark matter. Mm-hmm. So we'll get through the really exciting story because the two of them are sat here bubbling away. And that is, of course, the Gaia DR2 data release. Yay. Yay. Uh, th- this is huge. I mean, it's, it's it's not often my Twitter feed erupts with people all talking about the same thing when it comes to like an astronomy story, but this is just one of them where somebody was even doing a Captain Planet joke, which is like, by your powers combined. And it was it the, the whole key to this whole DR2 thing. If you've not heard about Gaia, don't worry. Uh, it's a, a European Space Agency a satellite. It's been doing its job for a good couple of years now, and it's basically just mapping the entire sky with the grand aim of doing 1% of the stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. And that is a huge deal in terms of numbers. It's, it's, it's head-meltingly huge. Um, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? it, it yeah. When you say it, it's like we're going to map out 1%. That, that sounds pretty rubbish. 1%? Rubbish. Yeah. And like, well, what do you mean by mapping out? Because um, images of the galaxy that have that. Yeah, well, this is it, it's it's doing it at such a level of detail that you can get all kinds of extra information. So it's not just really accurate positions on the sky of every single object down to a certain brightness, which is kind of impressive. Um, but it's also got the ability to do parallax measurements, which give you distance. And if you don't know what a parallax is, it's the if you hold up your thumb at arm's length and then blink left eye and right eye you can see your thumb moving against the background that's the camera one camera two technique and but the same thing happens with the earth going around the sun so you can actually local stars have a bigger parallax than do more distant ones so you add in that information so basically in comparison to when you're going left eye right eye and you've got two inches between your eyes three inches i don't know um (laughs) you've got an earth orbit distance between the two measurements yeah. so you take a measurement on one side of the sun and a measurement on the other side of the sun so these are, because these things are so far away all stars are so ridiculously far away you have to have this massive distance between your two measurements otherwise you can never see the shift yeah and um, distances are a real pain in astronomy because it could so, be it could be so faint and close or it could be the same color object that's more luminous and further away and it's very hard to know for sure but the parallax will help nail down which of the two is right uh, and that's a big deal because we're, we're getting much better at this now uh, so on top of parallax, you can also now get proper motions, which is roughly how fast the star is moving against the background stars, uh, which you can assume to be not moving at these sort of distances. And that's a big deal too, because everything in the Milky Way is moving. And on our crappy little lifetimes, uh, we don't see any changes in the sky, but they are happening. Every single star up there is moving. And Gaia is measuring how fast those things are moving too. So that is a huge treasure trove of information. And we've already done it for... Ooh, 100,000 stars or so. So the last mission to try and do this in any great detail was Hipparchus uh, satellite. And this one has just topped. So that's 118,000 stars in that catalogue. And that didn't even have parallaxes for everything. And now there's 1.7 billion stars have just been released to the astronomy community and the wider public. I don't know if there's been such a big step change in in an area so quickly, you know, that maybe it's partially because of the way they've released the data that there's sort of, Often if we're doing a big imaging survey, you'll get images and you build up your survey. It's like, because they've had to wait timelines on all the objects, you know, you go, you look, they've measured something, they've gone back and measured it two years later. Well, they've measured it loads of times, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but you suddenly got this big release at once. To go from, you say, this 
what what the time was like a great map, hundred thousand objects, really good, really handy. To then go to a billion is just it's just it's astronomical. I, yeah, I, it I, is astronomical. I worked out in seconds. Like talking about billions and millions is difficult, but in terms of seconds, it's quite good for comprehending. So if you want to count one hundred eighteen thousand sources, if you count one a second, one hundred eighteen thousand seconds is about thirty three hours. Um, 1.7 billion sources. If you wait for 1.7 billion seconds, you're going to wait for 54 years. So this is this is how much extra data is coming down the pipe, and it's all in catalog form. And there are many excited people who can literally dive in and start messing with the data because it's all ready to go. And you know, it's going to tell you things about the Milky Way, its formation history. You can find streams of random stars that are superimposed on other things in the background, and try and work out where things are coming from, where things are going, and uh, evolutionary charts, Hertzsprung Russell diagrams, all this kind of thing. You can instantly do. So there's going to be a ton of papers coming out quite quickly over the next year, I would imagine. Oh, where yeah. all the low hanging fruit is going to get spat out really, really fast. Um, yeah. But it's it's really impressive. I think a key point has to go, or a lot of credit has to go to the, the team that have actually released the data as well, because the way that it's been released is as a very useful, functional and accessible catalogue. So simple, in fact, that even I was able to use it today. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly. Yeah, you can just, and anybody can do this. It's not just for scientists. It's, and the servers hadn't crashed due to no, the overwhelming demand. Okay, no, it's, it, yeah, it was amazing. It's better than TSP. Um, everybody can go, uh, go and access the data. Go and look for the Gaia archive. Um, you can put in a coordinate or a name for your favorite object. Um, and then you can put a little search box around that region you're interested in and you press go and it comes back with a list of objects. Obviously, if your search box is quite big, it's going to stress out your computer because there's a lot of objects <laughs> out there. So keep that search box small. But you can, I did it today on a couple of objects which um, we've been studying and we're kind of interested in. And you literally just took me 10 minutes and produced this this unprecedented measurement before. And it's there with an error bar. And, it, it's, and it's, it's good to go. It's good to go. Science, right? Great paper done. I, uh, I should even stress that the DR2 is not even the final release no, product that's going to no. come from this mission. They're, they're getting much better at working with the data. So DR1 was kind of like a trial run. Here's our first batch. DR2 is obviously gone a bit uh, epic in terms of the numbers. And DR3 and 4, I think there'll be at least two more before they sort of start going, this is all the calibrations are finalized. Um, but, you know, people are so keen to work with the data. that is really good news because people can start diving in to see what they can do with it. And for those of you that, that care about things beyond the Milky Way, this isn't just Milky Way stuff. I mean, there's half a million quasars are in there. They're the things I care about. And they're, you know, half the age of the universe ago, most of them. So um, there's a whole bunch of them out there, too. There's some half of them, a million variable stars, like yeah, spectra for some things, there's radio velocities, this kind of thing. So it's really impressive. A lot of solar system objects as well. A lot of asteroids in, 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 in our own solar system which are being picked up. Yeah, like 5,000 or something. Yeah. But um, on the quasars, they're actually, to some degree, aren't they Partially, the background sources they use are static points, aren't they? I think it's like, it's like they're using it to define a reference frame yeah. in the optical. So um, to come back to Ali saying about the blinking your eye thing, you, you you hold your thumb at arm's length and you blink your eye, and you can see that it's moving relative to the thing behind your thumb. Um, I think this is kind of to some degree the quasars create the background. They they create the the. I think they use some lovely term of like a celestial reference frame or co celestial coordinate system or something. Yeah, which, which I think we're in a bubble of quasars and then you can yeah. make sure the bubble of quasars looks sensible, which means you've sort of averaged out all the um, peculiar so, velocities. so distant, so mm -hmm. we're never going to see them shifting on the sky. So we use that as the kind of reference grid against which all these other Milky Way stars have been measured. But it's just, it's just fiendish. And I think, I'm not quite sure, but on the, the next releases... Do we get more objects or we just get the same objects with more precision? Uh, yes and no. 
Um, I think they're they're getting better. It's <laughs> a cop out. <laughs> <laughs> some of the they said some of the caveats with this one is the, the at the bright end they're struggling a wee bit because the star's so bright it makes it hard to make sure the calibrations are good. Um, there are some issues where you see gaps in the data because of the scanning pattern. So the the telescope's just slowly rotating on the sky and it's got two um, two um, sort of uh, mirrors uh, that are reflecting down onto the main CCD chip. So you've got a sort of blue channel and a red channel and it's it's doing all kinds of very clever processing techniques to save data space and everything. But it's something like 50 gigabytes a day it's taking of these yeah. stars and it's throwing away as much information as it can. So it's not recording empty pixels. It's trying to record only the stuff that the stars are in. Uh, something like two million stars an hour. That was one of the, yeah, the fact sheet staggering stats. Like, okay, yeah. this is fine. Yeah. Um, so there's still work that can be done. So the bright end's got to get better. And I think they may be able to push very close together objects, depending on the scan direction. Okay. There's yeah. still one or two problems getting the very closely things you want to resolve both objects and not just have one magically appear and disappear in the catalog and stuff. So those kind of things will get solved as well. But it's still pretty awesome. Just from a point of a local connection as well, a lot of the data analysis and a lot of the sort of production of this data set has been done here in Edinburgh. Yeah, I think particularly the way the data is read out, as Ali's saying, they're throwing stuff away. They, they, rather than taking an image and then analysing points in an image, they, the, the light falls on the detector and the detector is, the light which is falling is, is conti- it's quite hard to describe this without a diagram, but it's continually shuffled to the side of the detector uh, all the time. And you just measure the kind of, light which is reaching the edge of the detector um can't think of a very good analogy of this but this incredible clever system was developed by university of edinburgh staff it was part of the the wide field astronomy yes i don't know i mean yes very much they are very heavily involved i don't know how much they developed or um, i think i think they're right they're they're right at the raw data end i Mm. think so they're in charge of it they were doing stuff to do with trying to quantify radiation damage on the detector so like really nth level stuff but Mm. trying to figure out exactly how it's performing yeah exactly I mean, to, to get that level of precision is, is absolutely crazy. Um, and, and I think it's intriguing that because they've thrown away the images, the, the main press release thing, which I think will be on all the, the papers tomorrow, well, should be, I don't know, I hope it is, um, <laughs> is a big, well, looks like a big picture of our galaxy. And it's funny because we've seen pictures like that before, um, but this actually isn't a picture. It is a, it's a collection of data points on a, on a graph. It makes it look like a picture, which I, I sounds a pedantic point, but it's not that we've gone out and imaged the Milky Way. We've measured the position of so many objects that you put them all together. You go, there's a star there, there's a star there, there's a star there, there's a star there, and, 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 and it maps out the Milky Way, which of course it should. You can do weird things with this stuff. They've made some fun videos as well with the, the proper motions of local stars. So they've, they've drawn yeah, the constellations on things. a 360 degree video so you can map around the whole sky, pick your favourite constellation and play. And it'll show you which stars have the highest proper motions. It's really exaggerated. So before you think the stars are literally flying apart over the course of a year, um, it's just to show you which ones are moving faster than others or which ones are closer by, by proxy. Um, but then it'll also show you the proper motions. And so uh, if you speed the clock up a few million years, you'll see the direction stars are going to be moving in and we won't have the same constellations anymore. But it's quite interesting. Some of them hold together better than others. <laughs> so sticking with the theme of sort of large survey uh, spacecraft, I guess TESS is worth talking about. Launched last week. In it was yeah. launched on the 18th of April at 6.51pm local time. This is nice. from uh, the Kennedy Space Centre. It, is, it is a wonderful acronym. What does it stand for again? The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Telescope. 
This one's going to be shiny too, isn't it? All right, say that again. Transping <laughs> exoplanet survey. Satellite? That's test. Satellite. Satellite, satellite. satellite yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is a telescope, but not a satellite. <laughs> I think got the name wrong. <laughs> no, Martin got the name wrong. Sorry. Martin got the name wrong, yeah. So this is going to be a telescope that's pretty much surveying 85% of the sky and looking at the nearest 200,000 uh, stars to the sun and looking for exoplanets going around them. Is it the nearest 200,000 or the brightest? I, can't, I think it's, it's like it's getting all the, the local planets in the box kind of mm. thing. Um, yeah, so, I think so. Uh, if you've heard of the Kepler mission, this is, uh, this is kind of like the next generation um, equivalent. Kepler stared at one patch of sky, which is about as, as big as your fist at arm's length or something. So, um, and there was, it found thousands of exoplanets in that corner of sky. Uh, this one's going to do the rest of the sky, but focus on stars that are much closer to home. Um, and it, but it's still waiting for that dip as the planet goes in front of the host star, which means you need to get lucky. So you need the planets and the star to be aligned so that you will see the dip, um, but it's going to catch all of the ones that we possibly can catch. Um, and that'll be quite impressive because then we'll get a local census a wee bit better. Mm. I saw a nice YouTube video looking to find out stuff about Tess, and it was a lovely video or something which said, looking for the shadows of planets. I thought it was kind of sounded very dramatic, and I was like, actually, not kind of quite, quite, yeah. quite accurate, really. You, you're, kind of, you're, you're looking for the fact that as you look at a star and a planet wanders past it, it the star gets a bit fainter. And, it, and it's a tiny smidge of light. We've it discussed the, this before. The midge in the headlight analogy, yeah. I think, is about uh, the most accurate one. But it's, uh, it, it, you, it's amazing. You can do this quite easily now. You can do it with relatively basic telescopes. You don't actually, you know, unless you want to scan the whole sky, you don't need a, you don't need a, a big telescope to do this. Yeah. Um, I like that this one's in a weird orbit. Um, there was a name for it and I've forgotten about it. It's like a resonant orbit with a moon. Um, but it's like quite inclined, so it's it goes out about as far as the moon, but higher uh, above our own sort of plane, uh, and then comes back in quite close to the Earth, um, but goes around twice for every time the moon goes around once. Yeah. But this is an orbit that's not really been tried before because it's quite hard to get into it apparently. Um, so it's going to take like two months just to phase it up and get in the right position and take yeah. a lunar flyby. Is it next month? The lunar flyby yeah. is happening or something? Um, I think it's about two weeks to get into the the lunar. Lunar orbit and then, or not lunar orbit, lunar lunar flyby. But it was sort of three months total time between getting into orbit and setting up and getting running. And then it's going to be going for two years minimum. Yeah. Um, but I think it's got fuel to stay up there for quite a long time, so they could keep it going for. Well, a apparently, bit the orbit is stable for ten years well, without it's having to do anything. Minimal, minimal. I think because this it's, kind it's, of uh, crazy interaction means that it's a really stable and firm resonant orbit just keeps going yes because every time you go around the moon gives you a slight nudge on one side but then the second time you come around the moon's on the other side and gives you a nudge in the other direction so you're you're balanced why haven't we used it before it's such a sort of stable orbit it might be just because it's hard to get into it because i think you need to phase up relative to where the moon is and where you want to get to and Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know no no um, it does make you a little bit sweaty palmed because you're you know you've got to wait a long time to know that your mission's made a lot of nervous moments along the road yeah, um, I think this kind of orbital resonance and orbital maneuvers is an incredibly complicated thing. Mm. Don't believe what the Martian showed you of the guy with the stapler running around the office. It is an incredibly complicated part of proper rocket science. This <laughs> it actually is rocket science. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's intriguing because Tess is. There's a lot of talk about Tess doing sort of Earths and Earth-like type things, but I'm looking at it. It's interesting that it doesn't actually spend that long looking at the same patch of sky. Yep. So it does the whole sky in two years. Now you can quickly work out that that means that 
it's not looking at every star for very long. Uh, I think it does each patch for about 30 days for a yeah, patch. That kind of region. And, and that, that is going to limit, to some degree, the type of plants you can find. It means, you, you know, if you were looking back at the Earth using this thing, you, wouldn't, you, you might, by chance, see one pass of the Earth going in front of the sun. But you're looking at the other bit of the sky a year later when the Earth comes back around again. So it's going to limit it to relatively short period systems um, mm. where the planets are relatively close into their parent star. I mean, you can still find some Earth-like things because you'd find a, a rocky planet going around a smaller star, which is closer in and therefore still in a habitable zone and all that malarkey. Mm. But it, it's interesting that it's not really true Earth analogs. Um, but I guess then you'd need like a Kepler equivalent for the whole sky to yeah, be the really yeah. long period stuff. Well, so, I, th- I mean, this is, if this is low-hanging fruit, I think they still oh, said confidently it's like a few thousand more we're going to find. 20,000 uh, exoplanets. Yeah, which, are I think currently we're sitting at 3,800 exoplanets total discovered. Right. There's um, a whole bunch of unconfirmed ones that yeah, have only been yeah. seen once or twice. Well, that's, a, that's a big step change. Yeah. Mind you, it's no Gaia step change. It's got to be said. Got to be said. Uh, but then it, to, to, but to it doesn't billion. need that precision astrometry <laughs> no. craziness that Gaia has. So Tess can be a much more sort of, I think it's just four cameras, chunk, 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 chunk. Yeah. And it does like one sixteenth of the sky and just one at a time rolls around and gets everything in eventually. But it's quite impressive. It's interesting to compare, it, I think, with uh, Plato, which is coming next in the European... Is it uh, definitely mission. pronounced that way? Because sometimes I've called it, I've heard oh, somebody yeah. say plateau or something, and I was like, I. I, I th- that, that one, <laughs> P L A T O, that mission, <laughs> um, don't know what that stands for, um, planetary something. Um, that, that is similar in that it is imaging Earth like things, but I think it is trying to go for the longer period systems. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's doing the whole sky, I think it's doing a handful of objects repeatedly. Um, it's got multiple cameras as well. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it's how it's functioning, but it will. It is definitely trying to fill that difficult gap of getting brighter things than Kepler was looking at, um, mm. and covering nearby objects, but with a longer time baseline. So you get yeah. you get an, you potentially get Earth. Yeah. Nearby is always good because something like Webb, when it gets up, will be quite handy for going and having a look at some of the most favourably placed ones of these. Because yeah. anything that's transiting, you potentially have the chance to sniff the atmosphere. And sometimes yes. Webb might be able to get in there and do that. Sure. Uh, fair Plato's a little bit late. Like Plato's on like 2024. 20, well, no, I mean, teacher should still okay. be going. So it is good that we've got Tess going up in time for Webb to yes. know what to point mm-hmm. at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that'd be cool. And then Ariel will come later, which we were talking about in the last podcast, which, again, does the atmospheric analysis of the follow-up. So yeah. I think JWST will lead the way on that. Ariel will start doing the surveys. Um, but it's really showing how this is, you know, this is, this is such a growth area yeah. in astronomy, isn't it? But also it's intriguing, I think, that it was 20-odd years ago, we, 25 years ago, we found the first exoplanets. Um, more than that, 95. Mm. Yeah, that's a while. No <laughs> world. <laughs> um, and it's... It's sort of been growing. We've got to 3,000 objects and so on. But now we're sort of seeing the fruit of some of the earlier ideas. I'm sure it was probably as soon as we found them, people were saying, right, we want to build a spacecraft, we want to build a spacecraft, we want to go and look at this whole sky, we want to do this. And it's taken that long to go from that initial excitement to, right, how are you going to do it? When are you going to build it? How long is it going to take to build a spacecraft? It's sort time of, to get statistical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and rather than, yeah, the odd sort of you know, cherry picking, oh, that's exciting, that's exciting. Yeah. It's like, let's do whole sky survey. Yeah, twenty all the twenty thousand nearest bright, you know, short period systems. That's that's fantastic. Well, because when they launched Kepler, they weren't sure what they were going to find. It was very no, much a we'll true. see what happens. Yeah, and it was so successful that now things like Tess is Plato, Ariel, 
this is all spun off from there because it's been so successful and there's so many of these things out there that it's you need these different telescopes to do the different jobs because yeah. there's so many pieces oh. to go after. Mm-hmm. They also defied expectations as well, I think, in terms of there were a lot of planets, which was a lot of things which you know, much larger than Jupiter, much closer to the parent star than Mercury is. Which that was making people nervous for a while, but I think yeah. it, it turns out they're not as common as, no. as uh, they were just easier to spot. But we, we didn't, we didn't think we'd find them at all. Yeah. So <laughs> it's quite staggering. Still a lot of unanswered questions, though, isn't there? Oh, yeah. kind of... Thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise we wouldn't have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Sticking with the unanswered questions, the big unanswered question in astronomy for a long time has, of course, been dark matter. We've discussed it on the podcast a couple of times, and it was in the news again recently. What was that about? So this was an intriguing uh, measurement which of a nearby galaxy which, uh, in terms of finding things in space, didn't find any dark matter and therefore indirectly proves that it exists. Huh? <laughs> um, that is obviously a gross simplification of everything. Um, but the, this is a case where they were looking at a galaxy nearby which is a, an ultra-faint galaxy. Um, and this means it's a, it's a relatively large galaxy in terms of physical geometry, but there's not many stars in it. Um, so it's quite, I mean, some people have said it's a ghostly galaxy on the sky, all that sort of malarkey, lots of nice headlines. Um, but it is a galaxy which just doesn't have much mass. It's got a much, you know, in terms of billions, 400 billion stars or it is in our galaxy, it's, it's probably you know, maybe 1% of that. It's a tiddler. Um, it's a tiddler. Uh, but it's quite extended. So it's not a small, dense knot of things. It's still physically quite large taking up not that dissimilar a volume to our Milky Way, but the stars are just much more spread out. So there's something a bit odd about this galaxy, and there's a few of these things, we, well, lots of these things, but, but in terms of galaxy distributions, they're still rare. They're not common. Um, and a group do a, did a study recently where they looked at um, clusters of stars within this galaxy, so little knots within this faint thing, and they measured the velocities of these clusters um, and as they were moving around within the galaxy, and they found they were moving around at speeds which uh, were not what they expected. So one of the things which we find strongest bit of evidence for dark matter is that when you look at stars in galaxies, um, they, the speed at which the stars move is so fast that the galaxies should all fly apart unless two options. One is the option that our understanding of gravity is wrong on large scales, or there's some unseen dark matter which fills the galaxy and makes the gas- galaxy more massive than we see, and therefore the speeds make sense. Um, there's other evidence for dark matter, which is why we think dark matter is the answer to those, you know, those two options. Mm. And intriguingly, this galaxy seems to have stars moving at a rate which is sort of um, sensible if you t- didn't have the dark matter. So it, no dark matter. No dark matter in this galaxy. Now, the exciting thing in some well, I mean, that's bizarre and exciting in itself. How the hell did this thing form? It doesn't have dark matter. We thought dark matter was essential for galaxies forming and yada, yada, yada. Lots of interesting questions. But the exciting thing in relation to dark matter is its absence indicates that the gravity in that galaxy is behaving just as we expect. It suggests that gravity on large scales does do what we think it does. And that therefore implies that for all the galaxies which we see which are doing something quirky, it's not that we've got gravity wrong, it's that we must have dark matter. So that the absence of the thing has inferred that the thing does exist in the other things. <laughs> Clear as mud. I, that was that was way better put than I could have described that particular story. But um, yeah, I, I'm kind of yeah, it's interesting the fact that it's 
it's probably just the tip of the iceberg because there's bound to be more of these things that Absolutely. get found. Yes. And mm. it's quite hard to do. I mean, when the galaxy is that faint, you want to get a reliable velocity dispersion measurement. Yes. And you've got to be careful because there's all kinds of and systematic that, things that can creep in. I've heard a couple of people sort of saying, yes, it's an interesting initial result, but, um, and they're slightly questioning some of the measurements mm. and the data quality and so on. So the, 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 there's room for sort of... Uh, watch this space. Watch this space, yes. But the, the principle that if you find a galaxy which doesn't, doesn't have dark matter, proves there is dark matter in the others, is just yeah. the sort of illogicality of that mm -hmm. statement is delightful. I really like it. I suppose in a lot of sciences, you change one variable to look at what happens to other things. In astronomy, you can't do that because it's very hard to run experiments. True, yeah. The universe has handily enough removed one of the variables for us, we think, and we're looking at the results. Yeah. That's how we're trying to analyse this. So it's running what you would call a common lab experiment but on a universal scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the trouble is in astronomy, we're always, you know, we don't get to choose our experiments. <laughs> uh, we have to see what nature's offered. Oh, look, that one does, as you say. What would happen if you had a galaxy which didn't have dark matter? Here it is. Here's one. This is what happens. Oh, and it means gravity works. That yeah. means, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. And, that, and also, it's really, really weird. Like, we don't know how these sort of galaxies form. Um, people, the general idea for galaxies is that the dark matter which is massively dominant. It's like 10 times the mass of the galaxy in a lot of galaxies, like, like the Milky Way. There's, there's, so for all the stars we see, all these things we're mapping out with our optical telescopes and Gaia and all these brilliant things, they re represent a tiny fraction of the mass of our actual galaxy. Um, and so, um, where was I going with this? But the fact that we can't see it is a pain. Is a pain. Uh, yeah, yes. Because you, you, you never get to say you've seen dark matter. You get to say you've seen the effects of you've it. You've seen the effects of you, it. You've got to always have an indirect method. Uh, and it doesn't just have to be stars. You can sometimes trace the gas and use that as a, a tracer of what else is happening. Like the bullet cluster was a, yeah, a nice example of that where the, the you can almost separate out the dark matter from the galaxy smash um, because one thing interacts and one doesn't. So you get this weird sort of pattern in the data. But it's, it's hard work. Um, and, you know, we're still arguably it's called dark matter because we have no clue what it is no um no so we don't even know if it actually exists so. but, we, but we think i found my friend we think <laughs> that the underlying dark matter because it's so dominant is what creates the galaxy that the stars kind of fall into the gravity well of this massive amount of dark matter mm. so these other galaxies which don't have dark matter how do they fall um so one of the suggestions is it's kind of like gas which has been flung out from some exciting merger of other galaxies or something like that but it's, it's I mean, and left the dark matter behind, basically. Yes. So that's what you've got left. The stars have got sort of stripped from their dark matter. It's going to be a fun origin story. If this, was, if this was a Marvel thing, we'd have like a, you know, a whole 12, 12 movies planned out and you'd be like, how did that one get to be? Oh, that's cool. If it was anything to do with a radioactive spider, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> what? That sounds great. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time just to squeeze out one last story. Uh, and this is a story that's been hitting the headlines, which I thought was an April Fool's headline, but it wasn't in April 1st. Who's, who's going to say that? it? Who's going to say it first? Go on, Ali, if you want to. Ali. Uranus. I'm just letting that breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's kind of reassuring because in, in years of me talking about this planet, it's still funny. 
you still have a moment where half of the room's fine with it and the other half of the room kind of smiles a little bit and then there's that little ripple that goes through the audience and you're kind of like, yeah. Uh, but it, there has been a legitimate story uh, about Uranus and it was to do with the detection of gas in its upper cloud deck. And there'd been a debate for a while as to whether or not those upper cloud decks are composed mainly of ammonia ices uh, or ammonia gas or hydrogen sulfide gas. And both of those aren't too nice to smell, but hydrogen sulfide's the one that's um, been detected. So by implication, that's that's what the composition of these clouds should be uh, on Uranus. And then cue the headlines. So if you want to Google Uranus hydrogen sulfide, very scientific phrases, uh, you'll get about six uh, fart headlines in there as well. So, uh, and, and, you know, fair play. I think it's just it's, like it's bad press. So more people are going to know about this story than you would otherwise get. Probably more people know about this story than Gaia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think the, the official name of the planet should be Uranus brackets. It's okay to laugh. <laughs> and you know just leave it at that <laughs> yeah i think the particular headlines were it smells like rotten eggs because hydrogen sulfide is yes. what gives rotten eggs or smell um i don't even know if it's tr- of human flatulence as is well. that actually true or like were they just is. fishing oh, okay mm. that's fine well we'll let them have that one i suppose but i mean it's difficult work so it's yeah, not yeah. a bright planet and they had to use a big telescope i think it was gemini uh, and do near infrared spectra to see the the fingerprint um the fart fingerprint i'm going to say it the fart fingerprint. um but uh you know it's it's, it's it's interesting work, but this is the kind of thing we need to do for the far away ones too, right? It's, it's, we're literally looking at light from these atmospheres and trying to work out what the heck's in them. And yeah. so you have not seen the last uh, fart slash hydrogen sulfide joke, even if it's not connected to um, Uranus. Oh, I cheated there. I said that. I said it the the cop out way. <clears throat> my brain's, I'm, I'm my brain's, tri- I'm my brain's trying to I'm censor done. me now. I'm done. <laughs> All right, I think I think we'll finish up there then, so William can keep giving us these uh, these scowls of his disapproval <laughs> of our jokes. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers all. Bye. If you've enjoyed this banter and you want to hear more from us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Old Ricky Astro. Links are in the show notes.